0: I want to begin with a story that uh, it was a number of years ago and I was in Dharamsala, the place where the, the Dalai Lama's home. And he was going to do a teaching. It was um sometimes he does these very long extended teachings. But this was a simple half-day teaching that was um, expressly for lay people. It it was not one where you were expected to be a deep scholar of the tradition. And um, I was very excited. I was um, arranged things so I could be there then with a friend and we... um, when the Dalai Lama is gonna talk that sort of starts very early in the morning with people showing up and finding their spot. And being there, um, it was almost all people of Tibetan descent that were um, coming to see him. And they had come along, a lot of people had come a long distance. You could see them coming in the night before and finding their, um, you know, they had bags and food and all that. And finally the time came and everybody's settled in there. And um, he comes through and um, I think people know, but, you know, the Tibetan people are very devout to the Dalai Lama, really um, have beautiful devotion for him. And so for them, just to see the Dalai Lama, was really meaningful. So he comes in and does. there's all the appropriate chanting and everything. And then he goes up and he gives his talk. And his talk was, I thought, quite remarkable. His talk was, I know you guys all came here to see me. Doesn't do you any good. No help at all. I, it's just me sitting here. What you need to do, if you want, if if you want to follow what I have to offer, you need to meditate. And then he went on to be quite um, adamant. He was like. The really serious problem that we have right now in our culture is everybody is devoted to ritual and to superstition and to belief. And what we really need is for you to meditate. Wow. I'm not sure that's what they thought they were going to get when they came. Why was he so adamant? He was pointing to this, to what is only acquired through our own direct experience. A kind of wisdom that comes from knowing it for ourselves. This fifth faculty, Panya, is the Pali word. And it can be known as discernment, as insight, knowledge. though the transla- translation "knowledge," I think, is sometimes a little problematic for us, because sometimes it can be knowledge can be a little bit too much what we read on the web or we learned in school. The root of the word panya, the na at the end means to know, and the pa means to know correctly or to see correctly. So ultimately this means to know correctly, sometimes to see clearly. And there's three aspects Of panya that are talked about that I think are quite important to see and understand each level the first one is what's called sutta panya and what that means is the wisdom that we get from hearing the Dharma talk from reading from sharing with friends and this has value, it's very rare, it's, it's, um, it's considered um, very difficult to come to know and understand the Dharma without any instruction, without any information. That's why it's considered one of the great benefits, the great auspicious conditions in our lives if we get to hear the Dharma So suttapanya, very useful. But not the end of the road, not enough. Chintapanya. This is what we do when we reflect and we think about what we have heard. When we start to reason it out and like put it in our own words and see the logic in it and understand it this is very useful this points these two first point to the usefulness of study of reflection of writing of um hearing what other people's experience and then making it and then figuring it out inside yourself Really wonderful practice, but again, it only takes it so far. I remember um, a wonderful man coming on a retreat that I was teaching and at the end of the retreat he said, oh my goodness gracious, he said, I have an entire bookshelf full of Buddhist books. I've been reading them for years. I had no idea. And he was pointing to his fresh, new um, access to Bhavana Panya. The, The wisdom that comes from direct cultivation, from knowing it inside ourselves. That's what you're doing this week, is Bhavana Panya knowing deeply for, for yourself. This is what insight is, is that moment when we go, ah, oh, I know this. I know this to be true. I see how I suffer. I see impermanence. I see how I've got all these concepts and ideas, all the different forms. There's many pieces of wisdom that we might see along the way but we know it for ourselves so i'm going to tell you a very uh, rough story about how this uh, process unfolds between these three just sort of a worldly example so as i was in my teens i did some things that i'm not too proud of Um, i I trust i'm not the only one (laughs) so (laughs) with some chagrin i'm going to share this with you um i was uh i think i was about 19 and i was hitchhiking and Uh, trying to get from one place to another and back to school and somebody thought that was a really bad idea for me to be hitchhiking alone and they gave me a car. The only problem was I didn't actually have money for gas and gas was a lot cheaper so I sort of had just enough money for the gas Well, the reason they gave me the car is the car used about as much oil as it did gas and I didn't know I didn't see how this was going to work and I was actually in Florida and I needed to get to Minnesota so um I remember very clearly and I think this is an indication. I remember very clearly stealing a case of oil. I walked into a store, picked up the case of oil, and walked out the front door. (laughs) And I was a good girl and I probably nobody thought that this good girl would, could possibly be walking out with a case of oil but I did and it's interesting sharing this I don't remember anything else from that whole trip except for the fact I took that case of oil so it was very clear to me that taking the case of oil, I had a lot of sutapanya about it. There were laws about it. I'd been told it was wrong. On some level, I knew it was wrong. But I had a lot of justification. I had my own story about why this was what I was going to do. So I just went ahead and did it. And it. Goes from there. Well, then, quite a bit later in my 20s, I th- th- that... That earlier habit wasn't a consistent one, but you know, it arose. Later on though, I started to notice, um, I gave that up, but you know the chocolate almond bins in the store where you kind of need to taste the chocolate almond (laughs) to know that you need, I mean, as if you'd never tasted a chocolate (laughs) almond before. So, I had by that time reflected and knew that stealing wasn't a good thing. I, this was starting to be understood at, and I could very clearly tell you, not a good idea. But this wasn't quite that. I sort of had my little story about it. So then I started to meditate. 25 years ago or something and um, I started to really notice I could feel it I would start to taste the almonds and I'd do this and I'd go isn't that interesting I have to be sure nobody's watching what does that tell me what is that feeling like in myself? What's happening here? And clearly there was a different kind of knowing. It wasn't coming from outside. It wasn't a rule. It wasn't a fear of somebody else. As it got more and more refined, I could feel and recognize the lack of alignment. And if you look backwards, the fact that I remember the case of oil so clearly and nothing else tells you, tells me that the lack of alignment was so clearly there back then, but it wasn't what I was paying attention to. Now I knew. Now I knew. This is a very rough version, but it is related to the, um, to sila, and sila is considered, that's the precepts, ethical conduct, and that is considered the ground from which the five faculties have the ground in which they can grow. That we have to develop a certain sensitivity and calm and relationship to our actions and as we do that our relationship to the five faculties can be increased of the five faculties it's this fifth one wisdom which is considered the culmination of these five faculties. I'll read you a sutta called the Pades Sutta. It's called In the Foot. I'm going to read you part of it. And which are those elements that conduce to enlightenment? The faculty of faith conduces to enlightenment. The faculties of energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom conduce to enlightenment so these are the five faculties just as all the foot characteristics of all the jungle creatures are combined in the elephant's foot and the elephant's foot is reckoned chief of them in size so too practitioners of all the elements that conduce to enlightenment the faculty of wisdom is reckoned chief as regards to the attainment of enlightenment the buddha is really the the sutta is pointing towards the that it's the wisdom that is the culmination the faith the um energy, the mindfulness, the concentration, these are all very, very useful. They're pointing to the wisdom and to the ability to cultivate wisdom. The wisdom specifically is a balancing factor with the faith, just as concentration and energy are balance. Here's a quote from one of the commentaries of the Sudhi manga. For one who is strong in faith and weak in wisdom places his confidence foolishly in an unworthy object. So does that make sense? If you have a lot of faith, but there's not a lot of discernment going on, you could put your faith in something not useful. The Dalai Lama was saying, I understand you have a lot of faith and you think that seeing me and touching my robes is somehow going to serve you, but that's a foolish place. I want you, that's an uneven relationship between faith and wisdom. One strong in wisdom and weak in faith errs on the side of cunning and is as hard to cure as a sickness caused by medicine. Isn't that interesting? Too much wisdom and not of much faith. So the way I take that to mean is that if you're so busy trying to figure it all out, so caught up in the concepts that you get stuck at that first stage of sutta Panya and the other one in the cinta You're so busy trying to figure it out that you can't just have faith that the practice is going to work and set aside all those concepts and sit down and do it. You're all caught up in your own cunning. Anybody had that happen? Get all so caught up in the concepts that you just don't actually do the practice. But with the balancing of the two, faith and wisdom, one has confidence only in the deserving object. In your practice, in seeing things clearly as they are. So here's another thing talking about this balanced. Oh, this is more talking about the starting with the faith and the process. It says, the noble disciple who has faith, after thus striving again and again, after thus applying mindfulness again and again, after thus concentrating his mind again and again, is now fully convinced. These teachings, which before I had only heard, I now dwell in their personal now dwell in my personal experience, and having penetrated them with wisdom, I now see them myself. Ah, oh, now I get it. I see it. So this is speaking to a spiral quality, that we—it's not like we just start at faith and we end at wisdom. Can you feel how these spiral around? We need a little bit of faith to get started. And then we need some energy and mindfulness concentration. And then we get a little wisdom that we really know. And that brings more faith that this works. And that brings more energy. And then we have another level of wisdom. And it keeps and it feeds itself in a really beautiful way. We start this whole process, you might have noticed, we start this whole process with a desire to be happy, to be free of suffering, it's a great place, it's such an important thing. And this leads us to want to see what what are the conditions for happiness? What are the conditions that give rise to suffering? And this leads us to to our meditation practice, to paying attention closely in the given moment. And then we pay attention in a given moment. We see the arising of suffering and freedom from suffering. And then we know how to create happiness. I want to read you a poem from Buddha. It's from the Theragatha, it's of a monk in his um Yeah, I'll just read it. When the thundering storm cloud roars out in the mist and the torrents of rain fill the paths with birds, nestled in a mountain cave, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When along the rivers the tumbling flowers bloom, in winding wreaths adorned with verdant color, seated on the bank, glad-minded, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When in the depths of night in a lonely forest, the rain deva drivels and the fanged beast's cry, nestled in the mountain cave, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. Devoid of fear, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When one is happy, expunged of grief, unobstructed, unencumbered, unassailed, having ended all defilements, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. I like this poem because it's pointing to when conditions are rough, when conditions are easy, when conditions are going back and forth, confusing one meditates. It's all available. It's all an opportunity to sit in the midst of whatever is happening. Wisdom is not only in seeing clearly what's happening but being interested in the whole process of what's happening so one of the ways of understanding wisdom is there's a things saying things seeing things as they truly are there's a Pali phrase yata buta to see as they truly are and to see things as we truly, as they truly are. When we sit here, we're paying attention to what's happening in the moment, right? What is this moment? What is it like? And something very important is that we pay attention, not just to this moment, but to the next moment and the moment after it. This continuity of moments, so then we start to see how one moment affects the next moment. Have you noticed how you're at a, like your conditions, perhaps one of the faculties, you put in energy and then the next, it affects the next moment. And then because you've put in the energy, there's something that you see that interests you and that affects the next moment now you're seeing clearly that one and so on or another example you're suffer you see that you're suffering and you get curious what is this suffering about and you feel the suffering in you and you feel the tension and you and then you notice the wanting something that isn't here And then you start to see that you don't actually need that. And the tension softens. And you notice that you stop suffering. You're seeing this process of how suffering is created or freedom from suffering. One of the things that we clearly see is how it keeps changing. Have you noticed that you have, uh, you have had moments where you want to just create an ongoing, quiet mind with not a single thought? And you know by now, oh, with, with peace and contentment and joy present at all times and but you can look and see that even if that moment arises it's lovely but the next moment well maybe if you're lucky it lasted a little longer than a moment maybe not and then it changes and at this point in the retreat you no doubt have seen for yourself how Whatever your mood was yesterday, whatever was happening yesterday, it is gone. Yesterday, last hour, 10 minutes ago. It's always moving along. And if we pay attention to these successive moments, we see that so clearly, don't we? It's just going by. This is wisdom, to see that and to see that trying to grab a hold of it and make it stand still, to grab a hold of that moment of peace, no thinking, nothing bothering me, everything perfect, and hang on to it, even just the idea of that is suffering. And I know you've experienced that yourself, no doubt. You've seen that suffering and you've seen how you don't need to do that. So what this, a very important aspect of this wisdom, of this quality of wisdom is seeing how we suffer and how we find freedom from suffering again and again. How we... What really brings contentment? I want to share with you something that um, I found very helpful. So one problem we run into as we see the ways that we create suffering is we go, well, I see how I create suffering, but it keeps happening, you know. I see how, you know, I, I'll i use a daily life example, you know, in some relationship with a loved one. You see how things that you might say cause suffering. And, after, and you see that and you see there's maybe this way that you're blaming or unkind. And then you go, wow, that's not helpful. And then, oh my goodness, you do it again. Very humbling. It was a great relief to me when um, Ajahn Amarose said 80% of practice I don't know, maybe he said 70%. I don't think the percentage matters. Is seeing what we're doing, seeing the way we're created and suffering, and doing it anyway. (laughs) I was mystified by this for a long time. So this is how I've come to understand it. Like that case of oil, or the mean thing that you say, for a while, it's just not in your radar. You don't notice it, and then your sensitivity goes up, and it comes onto the conveyor belt. It comes into sight, and it's like you go, "Ooh, ooh, that, that is suffering." I, I don't. Oh, oh, I did it again. Oh, there it is. Oh, And along the way there, can you feel by my cringe? What you're doing is seeing the suffering in your action. This is why it's so important to see the dukkha, the dukkha, the suffering in our actions, in our thoughts, in our speech. We see it and we go, oh, oh, that hurts. I don't like that. I don't like that. And we keep doing that. And we keep repeating probably because we have a really strong habit patterns. We have these habits and we just do it again and again. And we keep doing it. And then at some point, we're about to do it. And we go, oh, I've done that so many times that I know if I do it again, the experiment has been run so many times. The evidence is in. If I do that again, I'm going to suffer. And then we have this period of time where we almost do it. And maybe sometimes we even do it in there. And then we see the suffering again. And then we don't. We go, you know, you've had this happen here. There's some thought that comes into your mind. And after four days of churning that thought and having that, thing going around at some point you go I'm not going there I'm just not going to go there it it's just suffering it's not useful and then if you do it again oh there no I'm not going there no I'm not going there and then what happens is you just don't go there and it falls off the end of the conveyor belt it disappears off the other side And it becomes completely natural to not take what hasn't been freely offered or to have the mean thought or maybe sometime to have that critical voice to yourself or to think you can create the thought, the perfect non-thought moment and hang on to it. Oh yeah, that one's suffering, I don't need to go there. And eventually it goes off the other side. Well, then you'd think, couldn't I do this? And like, shouldn't I be working my way backwards and this 70% should go away? Well, actually I think what happens is our mind gets more and more subtle. It gets more and more aware. So what ends up coming on the other end of the conveyor belt is more subtle awareness to how we feel suffering. Maybe things that we do that We say things and people don't even realize that there's an edge in it. We're pretty good at covering it up, but we can feel it. So that comes on. So over time, our practice continues to have this pattern of things coming on and feeling the suffering. And then we see it and we let it go and it disappears. And over time, it gets more and more subtle, more and more subtle. And this is the building of wisdom seeing it clearly, and then when the wisdom is strong in a particular area, it just fades off. And that form of suffering isn't there for us. One of the things that's useful for me about this conveyor Belt image and realizing that there's that 70 or 80 percent of the time where we put repeat the behavior is that we can see in that these incredible habits, these conditions that are from our history, from the culture, from our upbringing, from our instinctive nature. And that those things are going along, and there's kind of a big momentum, We sort of have the Titanic we're working with here, and it helps when we realize the amount of momentum that we don't need to take it personally, that this process is unfolding, it's got its time, but I'm doing the best I can and I don't need to identify with each time I make the mistake, each time I don't get it quite right. An example of that, you know, I look back in in my upbringing, there was a lot of um conditions around money there wasn't a lot of money and the um and so there wasn't a lot of security around that there was a lot of frugality there was a lot of tightness and that continued college was very very difficult putting myself through school and and all through these conditions i developed a lot of habits some of them were really useful, you know, I I got really good at not spending money. Well, then at a certain point, I started to see how these habits like had a kind of pulling in a kind of tightness, a, a grabby quality, and it was really painful. And... I started noticing that, and of course, at first, I just wanted it to go away, but I didn't want the money to go away. I didn't want to it wasn't like, that didn't seem like the right solution, that all of a sudden, I was just going to buy everything. I didn't need everything, but I wanted this quality to go away, and I could really feel the suffering in it. And what I noticed over time was that, as I developed instead the relationship to it, that this is on the conveyor belt. It has a lot of history and a lot of momentum. My grandmother was raising a, was a single mom in the depression, raising a child. My mom was a single mom, no money. Oh my God, I mean, the history. the It was like in my cells, this attitude. Of course. It's not my fault. I didn't make this up. It came along to me. And once I saw that, I was able to start just going, yep, there it is. You know, here I am at the restaurant and this costs $1 more than that, but I'm going to b- order the thing I don't want because the thing <laughs> I want costs a dollar more. Really? You know, yeah, let's, let's. are you going to really do that? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Okay, do it. You know, <laughs> whatever. And over time, I just sort of uh, developed a sense of humor about it. And it's like, yeah, that's the way it is. And then it started getting softer and softer, less, less grip to it. I'm not completely free of it. Now I I add a new layer to it is that um, because of environmental issues, I don't want more stuff to be in the world. So that's been an interesting, how do I have a relationship with that without it being tight? So the solution I've given myself is I buy one new thing a month, but because of environmental concerns, but I want it to be something that's really good and will last. So that there's not a a tightness about it, but instead a, What is really supportive? So that's how, you know, I continue to work with this. One of the important things about this practice of wisdom, of seeing where we suffer and where we are free of it, and how to be free is it points to the importance of wisdom versus experiences. Sometimes we come on retreat or we sit down in our practice and what we want is some big experience. We wanna have a nice experience or an enlightening experience or something dramatic to happen. But experiences come and go. Whatever experience you had yesterday is gone, not here anymore. But if you learned something from it, if you had an understanding about it, the wisdom can keep going with you. I remember once I have had what I call my dukkha retreat, maybe... Maybe you're having your dukkha retreat. I'm sorry if you are. Mine was seven weeks long. And um, I came out of the retreat and I was talking to my my teacher at the time. And he, he suggested I reflect on the Four Noble Truths. What was the source of the dukkha? How was I relating it to it? What was going on? really important what can I see and learn and understand from this and then he said something that really threw me for those of you who aren't familiar with the word I'm going to use the word mudita which means sympathetic joy and dukkha means suffering he said I "I have mudita for your dukkha (laughs) I said you've got to be kidding me (laughs) What he was pointing to is the opportunity in the suffering. If I paid attention to learn and see my way out of that form of suffering, there was an opportunity there for wisdom. At that point, the seven weeks were over, the experience was gone. You know, I mean, it wasn't that he wasn't being compassionate, but it was already over. What do you know? What can you learn? One of the ways that our wisdom, as we develop it, can show up in the present moment is by the choices that we make. This is very important. This is one of the places that I feel like um, we get to express our wisdom. And I'm going to give you two phrases that really help me with this. The wisdom of doing in the present moment that which is unpleasant because we know it will lead to our long-term happiness and well-being this is wisdom so you may come in here you may look at the schedule and go I do not want to sit another set but something in you goes I know this is skillful I know this is this is headed in the direction I want to go so even though it sounds unpleasant in this moment I'm going to stay with my compass I'm gonna I'm headed to the north and I'm going to go that way and even though in this moment that is unpleasant I'm still going to do it what we're talking about here is moving beyond the simple pleasure principle you know an amoeba when you put food on the plate on the slide moves towards it you put something it doesn't want on the plate it moves away from it we're not so different if we're unskilled if we're without wisdom but with wisdom we have more choice would this be something worth doing even though it's not pleasant and we all do this you know sometimes you've You know, like getting exercise. Eh, That's not really what you want to do. But you know it leads to general well-being. So the flip side of that is also true. Not doing in the present moment that which is pleasurable, knowing in the long term it won't lead to your happiness or well-being. So the simple example of that is the third slice of chocolate cake. It will be very pleasurable. Nobody can convince me that the third slice of chocolate cake is not going to be pleasurable in the moment. And not going to sit well. Long-term not well-being. So, you know, this can apply to You know that, like, it would feel really good to say that thing to somebody about how you're right and they're wrong. Like, in the moment, oh, that'd feel good. But, you know, you've been there before. You've seen how it causes suffering. And you just go, mm. so letting go of that immediate grasping after pleasure this is wisdom it doesn't say pl- things that are pleasant are wrong or bad but it's again holding the bigger context what is going to lead to my long term freedom happiness contentment that's wisdom going to end with another story from uh, a trip that I took and a retreat I went on I was had the opportunity to go to Bhutan I was part I was leading a group of people but before that started I went on a retreat there and they don't they're not set up for retreats for westerners or anything this wasn't like I was going on retreat i through friends, had found this monastery up on the side of a mountain. At a, it was about a little over eleven thousand feet. It was winter in Bhutan. Uh, over eleven thousand feet, We're very remote. It took two days of driving on this curvy road, and um. Somewhere early on, when I'd just gotten there, I hiked up a hill too fast and things, and I got this really bad case of uh, bronchitis. So I started getting, we were driving on this curvy road, and I started getting sicker and sicker. And then we got to where we were and had to hike up to this room I was going to stay in, and had my food and went up and was in this, uh, There were three other people there on retreat. No, two other people and a caretaker. One person was a monk who was on a three-year retreat, so never saw him. A nun who was on a, um, I think she was there for four or five months, never even saw her, myself, and a caretaker. And I had this little room, and it was a lovely little room. Um, There was sort of this real thin sort of, plywood kind of tacked up on the walls and there was a window that part of it had glass that was nice the part that had glass um (laughs) there was an outlet that sort of yes there was electricity so that had a wire to it and um the caretaker and I when we looked at it the wire was sort of burned through and he said yeah, maybe watch that. <laughs> <He's> I <like>, okay, <laughs> I'll watch that. <laughs> and then he gave, uh, Monk gave me a cooker, this little fried cooker thing. And as far as I could tell, you just turn it on and you turn it off. A couple times I tried to do something out. You know, I tried to like cook something and you can only burn something or boil something. Those were the two options. <laughs> So I settled into my two week retreat and um, I was well prepared. I did my retreat in this huge down jacket and these pants and um, it was nice in the room I was in. It didn't actually, it wasn't actually freezing. I know that because the water wasn't freezing on my things. And I was really sick and it turned out the electricity only worked Sometimes, but I didn't know when it would work and when it wouldn't. So I learned to like cook some food and then put it in a little container and that might be what I ate for a couple of days. It was hard to say. All these conditions. And I was so, there, I couldn't do anything about any of them. Couldn't change the weather, didn't, wasn't gonna change the room, the food, the electricity. I was sick and something in me just let go. It was like all my effort went into just getting there. And I was completely content for two weeks. Nothing was wrong, nothing. What if nothing was wrong right now? What if you could see clearly in this moment that you didn't need to suffer at all, just for this moment or this 10 minutes? Let's sit. May your wisdom continue to grow and bring you great happiness.